We're in the midst of a series that we've called Parental Guidance Suggested. We're talking about the fact that um, for the church to operate as a family, for us to grow in Jesus, uh, we need people in our lives who fulfill parental-like roles. We've been talking about the love that we should have for one another, um, and one of the ways that love is uh, explained in the Bible is like parental love. And so uh, last week we looked at how parental love is sacrificial, that it's the parent who pours out for the child. Like Paul says in his own words, he says for the church in Corinth that he gladly spends and will be spent for them. It's sacrificial, it pours out. What we're going to look at this morning um, is that parental love lovingly disciplines, okay? And uh, this is true not only in the broad category or the large version of what we sometimes call church discipline, but also just in the most basic level of how we respond to one another's sin. Not just merely when someone in the church sins against us, but when we know somebody is in sin in the church, what do we do next? And... um, Why I want to start in Matthew 18 this morning is because Jesus speaks about this, and I want to just make this observation very quickly. Jesus only uses the Greek word that we translate church in two passages in the Gospels. Just twice does he talk about this thing that begins with the book of Acts, this thing that he's going to do. Uh, The first one is a few chapters before this in 16 when Peter makes this proclamation. He says, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, on that I will build my church, Peter. On that confession right there, that's the foundation. The later authors of the New Testament says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the temple that God is building that we call the church. But the only other time he brings up this idea of the church is here in Matthew 18. And it's in the same context of Uh, sin. And so notice in verse 15, read with me, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, Hold on to that for later. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So notice he begins here by laying out a process. That process may culminate in what we sometimes call excommunication. The words that Jesus uses are treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. And remember who's saying these words. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? With disrespect? With a lack of love? Absolutely not. But categorically different than he treated those inside. In other words, he says, treat them as if the primary heart you have for them is repentance. That they would come to know Jesus that they would respond and turn away from their sin and turn back to Jesus and back to the church. But notice in the second half, after laying out this process that culminates, 
he talks about authority. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Okay? The idea here is that the church speaks collectively as the mouthpiece of Jesus, okay? as a representative of his authority. And he finishes by saying, if two or three of you agree, I agree with you. Okay? Sometimes we hear that as, as being a um, point of confidence when we pray. That if two or three of us agree, Jesus agrees with us. But notice the context here is church discipline. That's what he's actually talking about in this passage. Okay, so we can't lay aside the importance of confronting people in their sin, of pursuing church discipline without ignoring the words of Jesus himself. This is something that Jesus cares about. He only says two things in the Gospels about the coming church and uh, using the language of the church by name. One of them is it's built on the foundation of the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the other is you need to operate as a family. And so a family that loves does something about sin. Okay. In fact, later on in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes a letter through the Apostle John to seven first century churches. Five of those seven letters are corrective in nature, where Jesus confronts them about a particular issue, calls them to repentance, and says, if you do not, there will be consequences. Um, He says to the last church of the list, those I love, I reprove. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, what marks parental love is discipline. And any child of God who doesn't experience the discipline of God is at best a bastard child, doesn't actually have God as their father at all. In other words, discipline, God's discipline, his confrontation uh, and his working in our life to move us away from our sin is evidence of God's love. Now, the reason I'm laying that all out this morning is because this morning we're not actually going to talk about the discipline itself, but what it means when we say loving discipline. Because all of us know it's possible to do this wrongly, with wrong motives, with wrong methods, in ways that are not life-giving, but are damaging. In other words, if you're going to come to correct someone, in modern parlance, you better come correct right? We understand this. And what that means for us as Christians is you have to come in love. Paul, in our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 12, is about to come to the church in Corinth, and he's going to come as their father. He's going to come as a parent. He's going to come in love. But that may mean, in fact, it very likely will mean that he comes with discipline. Let's read the passage together. We're going to pick up here in chapter 12 uh, in verse 19 and read all the way through chapter 13, verse 4. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. 
I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others that I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, for all of us, a primary interpretive lens is experience. We look back on our life and it shapes what we believe. It shapes what we see as plausible and acceptable. It shapes how we respond to things, even to the point, Lord, where where sometimes we develop triggers that a single topic becomes so fully loaded that just the topic alone does damage. But I pray, Lord, that we would be able to, um, just in humility this morning, lay open our hearts afresh and ask for you to speak the truth into our lives. I pray as well, God, that, um, that if this idea that the author of Hebrews presents, that your discipline is an evidence of your love, Uh, that we would learn, Lord, how to appreciate and embrace it and also how to represent it, Lord. We ask that you would, um, for all of those who have experienced the worst form of this, Lord, behavior that's even abusive and exclusive, Lord, that you would bring healing this morning as we look at your heart for your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's no real way to read this passage without reading it as a warning. That's clearly what it is. Paul says, I'm coming to you again, and when I come, if there hasn't been changes, I will make changes. He uses the same language that Jesus did. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let it be established, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy, speaking actually about the need for eyewitness testimony in court cases. But both Jesus and Paul use it differently than Deuteronomy and use it in the same way. Use it as addressing this. In other words, Paul sees what he's about to do in the church of Corinth in following in obedience the passage we read in Matthew 18. There's a connection here. He feels the need to do that. But what I want to focus on this morning is Paul's heart. I want to put that correction, that need for discipline, that clear warning of confrontation. And it's strong, is it not? He says, if there's not change, I will not spare them, right? Those words mean very different things in the mouth of a father and in the mouth of a tyrant. But nonetheless, it's very strong. But this morning, we need to set it in its context of the broader heart. I want you to see how much Paul feels here, okay? Because when we read that language, there's clearly anger here, but there's so much more. And that's what we need to understand. And if we're going to deal with other people's sin in the church, 
we need to recognize that it is a, uh, it's only done rightly in love, and what that means is a whole lot more than just, just obedience to Matthew 18. So notice, for example, just to begin with, what he says again in verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Now, if you've been studying with us for the past few chapters, that's kind of a strange question. Because Paul has been clearly and very verbally laying out a defense. But what he says here is, do you think that was the plan? Do you think that was intention? Do you think I wrote this letter as a form of self-preservation? In other words, he says, do you think that I am coming as a defense attorney and that this is about me being on trial? He says, that's not what this is. Notice what he says next. He says, it's in the sight of God that we've all been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Okay, so the first thing he says here is, this is not my defense before the court of the Corinthian church. He says, I've spoken before the Lord. Okay, he says, I'm appealing here to the supreme court, the supreme of the supreme courts. I've spoken here before him, but even here, it's not been to defend myself, to justify myself, to prove myself innocent. He says, instead, I've done it for your upbuilding. Now, that's a weird word, upbuilding. If you have an older translation, it probably says edification. It's a primary word for Paul in how he describes what he's all about in ministry. It's a construction term. It means to lay one brick upon another. It means to build. What he says here is that everything I've done in the past few chapters has been to strengthen you to build you, to edify you, to mature you, to grow you. Paul's ambition is not even his own edification to build himself up. It's not even to stop himself from being torn down. Read the last few chapters. He's willing to take a punch or three along the way. He's willing to suffer. He knows that by putting himself out there in the way that he's just done in the chapters, he's opening himself up to more criticism and more pain. But his true interest is the growth of those involved. Okay? Now, see, here's the thing. Oftentimes, our first and our primary reaction to sin is about us. We react to sin because of what it does to us, and our goal is vengeance. Our goal is to balance the scales. Our goal is, because we're in pain, to respond by inflicting pain. I love how Paul Tripp talks about this. He says that the way we respond to sin initially is almost always because it's an offense against our kingdom. You've broken my laws. You've harmed my glory. And now you will bear my consequences. Okay. Now, all of us have enough human relationships with other humans to see what this looks like in life, to have experienced this. Okay, And so we... we don't just live in a world where we're sinned against, we live in a world where we respond to being sinned against by sinning against those who have sinned against us, right? And it builds, and it gets bigger, and it becomes, uh, it becomes like warfare. And the first thing we have to understand about church discipline is you can't start from a posture of self-defense. That is not as easy as it sounds. Jesus makes a similar point. In fact, he criticizes those who are swift to deal with other people's sin before he deals with their own. And this is what he says. 
He says, why, why do you complain about the speck that the, that's in their eye when there's a log in yours? And we hear that today and we go, yeah, that's right. Don't be judgmental. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, first, deal with the log in your own eye and then you can help your brother. See, the goal Jesus has in mind is actually that you would do something about the speck in another person's eye because let's remember the metaphor here. That's not good. It's painful. He's just saying you can't properly see what you're doing when you've got this own issue just bulging out of your eye. There's a hypocrisy in the way that we deal with sin, always. It says this, my sin's no big deal, your sin is a huge deal. It says, I'm deserving of mercy, from you I want justice. And that's the first thing that has to go. And Paul just bears his heart here and he says, everything I've done in this letter, it's not to protect myself, it's not to get vengeance, it's not to accuse you, it's been to build you up. That's the difference between church discipline and church punishment. Right? I mean, we use the words almost synonymously when we talk about children, but the goal of punishing your child, if it's not the same goal as discipline, is not parental in nature. We don't just want our children to serve their time, to pay their dues to society. We want them to grow. We want them to become better people. We want them to uh, modify and build their character to leave behind bad behavior and embrace good behavior, to surrender bad attitudes and embrace good attitudes. That's the difference between a, uh, uh, a parent and a policeman. God doesn't call for us to police other people's sins, to stand on the sideline and blow the whistle when everybody's, anybody's outside the bound lines, boundaries as if that somehow makes us more righteous because we're so well acquainted with the rules. Jesus lived in a world that was full of people like that, just like we do. They called themselves the Pharisees, and they carried their big whistle of righteousness and were swift to point things out. <laughs> I w I'm studying the book of Mark right now in preparation for the fall, and very early in the book of Mark, there's an occasion where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and they're just taking some of the grain. It happens to be the Sabbath. They're running it between their fingers, and they're chewing up uh, the wheat kernels. And the Pharisees literally jump out of the bushes and say, Aha! You're eating! You're doing work on the Sabbath! How dare you! What are they doing there? <laughs> They're just waiting for the disciples to do something wrong. That's not what this is. If you ever get the chance to read a super weird biography, see if you can find a copy of Alexander the Corrector. Alexander was this man uh, 150 years ago in England, and he wanted the job to be the corrector of the Church of England, the whole thing, to be the one who could walk around and stand these things. Now, he was a gifted guy. He wrote one of the definitive concordances of the entire Bible without the use of technology. Okay, that, that probably says, the way that he did that probably says a lot about how he viewed people, right? As problems to be fixed, as things to be organized and categorized. But that's not what we're talking about this morning, okay? Jesus envisions the church operating like a family. What does he say in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you. This is not being cut off on the freeway, is it? Paul has the same heart here. In fact, listen to the word he uses. 
he says here back in uh, verse 19, he says, I've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now I know I am so capable, just like you are, of throwing around loving language unlovingly. But just read 1 Corinthians. Read 2 Corinthians. When Paul says beloved here, that's not stock language. This is how he truly feels. This is where his heart is for the church, and what he desires is that they would grow. And here's the thing. For as many of us, uh, and this is all of us, know what it's like to improperly treat other people's sin by reacting and responding in kind by judging from the sign line and seeing it as evidence that we're righteous and you're not. As much as that's a reaction, another reaction is just to look away, to ignore, to bite our tongue. And sometimes we can even believe that that's the more loving approach, that because we love them, we won't actually bring this thing up. I would suggest this morning that that's because you love you. Because the consequences of confronting someone in sin are usually not good for the confrontor. Okay, it means conflict. It means late night discussions. It means accusations. It means separation. It means distance. The truth is, confrontation, when done rightly, is tremendously vulnerable. Because you're putting the relationship at risk because you care more about the growth and the upbuilding of that person than maintaining the status quo, than keeping the peace. What this implies, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, is that sin is actually serious. If it's nothing, if it's no big deal, if it doesn't do damage, if it's just a difference of opinion, if it's just your morals and my morals, if it's just these are my choices and I'm not hurting anybody, if that's all that we're talking about, then clearly here we're off base. But if sin actually leads to death in the way that the Bible talks about, if it's already damaging and decaying people and relationships, if it's corruption and it harms, and over time it harms more, and eventually it will actually bring about destruction, then we have to be serious about sin. We've got to watch out for the false dichotomy that says either you care about sin or you love the person. Either you're committed to obedience and righteousness or you're all embracing and loving. Jesus was serious with sin. He says, look, if your eye causes you to sin, it'd be better to pluck it out than let it continue to exist and tear apart your life. And at the same time, he went as a doctor he said, I didn't come to the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. I'm a doctor, and the world is sick, and so I've come to bring healing. If we're going to be like Jesus, we need to care about sin in other people's lives for their sake. Notice what he says next in verse 20. He says, For I fear perhaps that when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy, and he goes on and he makes this list. I want you to notice the, f- the second mo- emotion we see here, not just this motivation to mature, to grow, to upbuild, but the second motivation, or the second emotion we see here is fear. 
what does it mean here? Now, we've already talked about one form of fear that is out of place. Okay, that's the fear of people, right? Sometimes we bite our tongue because we don't want to make a stink. Sometimes we're afraid of, of them. Like, for example, imagine that the sin that you need to confront is that they tear people apart when they're angry. <laughs> How do you even open that box without opening that box? You don't, right? You're literally just putting yourself in front of a speeding train. Okay? And so sometimes, like I said, we don't do these things because it's dangerous. But that's not what he's afraid of here. What does he say? He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I won't find you where I want to find you. And because of that, you won't find me where you want to find me. What does he want to do if he visits the Corinthians? He wants to love on them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to spend time with them. He wants to pray with them. What I want you to notice here is that Paul is reluctant. He's reluctant to do this. Not because he's not sure it's the right thing, just because there's so much more. Take the Jewish idea of shalom, the word in the Old Testament that's translated as peace. That's not just an end of hostility. Read the Psalms. It's a fullness of life. That's what Paul wants to experience with the church is that fullness. He doesn't want to just deal with what's in between them so that there's no problem anymore. He wants to fully step into and embrace all the benefits of family. One of the things we need to understand this morning is that when we confront people in their sin, we don't come as executioner. We come as coroner. We're recognizing that death already exists not calling for something to die. But Paul's heart for this church is that they wouldn't be totally ensnared and entangled in sin. As he goes on in this list and he lays out all these things, none of these things are things that Paul wants for the church and he's afraid that they might be going on. That fear is the fear of love. In the book of Job, Job has some children, they're adults now, and he knows that they really enjoy partying. We're not told that there's anything wrong with the partying they're doing, just that they're all together without dad having a party, and he makes a habit to pray for them and offer sacrifices that God would continue to lead them in righteousness. Why? Because he knows the deceitfulness of sin. And he doesn't know where these kids are really at. He's afraid for them. That's where Paul's heart is. He, read 1 Corinthians back in chapter, or 2 Corinthians back in chapter 7. He hopes there's been restoration, there's full things, but he's afraid that when he gets there, it's going to be different. He's afraid that the, whatever letter he's received from them in the meantime is not going to line up with reality. You know what that is? It's concern. It's loving concern. Notice what he says next. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish. You may find me not as you wish, and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity. There's two things I want to touch on there, but the first one is where he says that I may have to mourn. 
when church discipline, when confrontation, when dealing with other people's sin is done rightly, it's done in sadness. It's done in sorrow. If you're not grieved over another person's sin, you have no business bringing it up. Paul's fear here is that he is going to have to weep, have to mourn, have to feel the full extent of the loss of the fact that this is where they're at. That's a parental heart. That's the heart we should have. One of the ways to make sure you slow down how you treat other people's sin until you come correct in the Christian sense, till you come in love, is to take some time to really feel it. To take everything that the Bible says about sin and its consequence and actually believe it. To remember who this person is and how long you've known them and feel the full weight of the cost of their sin to look with both eyes at the cross of Christ and say, this situation right here, this is why Jesus had to die. It's mourning. Side note, this is God's heart with sin. The catechism this morning mentioned that one of the things God did in Jesus Christ was dealt with his wrath, dealt with his righteous anger. When we read about eternal punishment and about hell and about judgment. As moderns, we don't always know what to do with that, but let me help you understand this morning that that's not the only way God feels about sin, that it grieves him, that when God comes as judge, he comes mourning. What does Jesus do when he gets to Jerusalem in Luke 19? He weeps. And do you remember the context there? He's coming in. He's riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy. The Messiah has come. It's his great arrival into the city of Jerusalem. Everyone around him is rejoicing and praising and saying, Hosanna, save now, Lord. But not Jesus. Jesus is weeping. And he says, Jerusalem, how often I would have come to you like a mother hen to her chicks to gather you under my care, but you were unwilling And since you did not know the day of your visitation, your time is coming to an end. Jesus knows that in just 30 short years, Titus, a Roman general, is going to ride in, sack Jerusalem, flatten it to the ground, remove Israel from the land, and he weeps. But he weeps as the sovereign judge. We should mourn before we confront And then notice the other one he says. He says just before that, he says, I'm afraid, uh, verse 21, that when I come against again, my God may humble me before you. Some of your translations say that God might humiliate me before you. Now, that clears up one thing that we should get straight here is that confrontation should never be humiliating the person we're confronting. Paul's fear is in a totally different place. In fact, we have to ask the question, what does he possibly mean here? But before we do, just get a hold of that. Okay, I believe shame plays a valuable and significant part in human relationships. But that's not the same thing as saying that shaming does. This is something I find in my own parenting that I have to repent of all the time. It's not just dealing with my children's sin, sin, but 
shaming them in it. Which almost always, because I'm a parent, makes it about me. You embarrassed me today. How dare you behave like that when other people are watching, right? That's where shame comes from. Shame always has to do with interpersonal relationships. And it's right and it's appropriate and it's good, but when it gets outside of its boundaries, it's toxic. And when we come and confront, we come like Jesus, begging, urging, requesting, frank in the truth, but with our heart on our sleeves. But what could Paul mean here when he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I will be humiliated? Is it just he's afraid that the church will still be in posture against him and will, you know, will, will shame him? No. He recognizes that as a parent of the children Corinth, he bears part of the responsibility for their maturity. He recognizes that if they are not maturing as a church, even though they're responsible for their own sin, it's humbling to him because he's their father, because he's their parent, because he's the one who's been investing in them and building them and calling them. His fate is directly tied up with theirs. And he's not just saying here, I'm afraid that people will hear about the church in Corinth going off the deep end and they'll go, makes sense, it's one of Paul's churches. That's not what this is. What he recognizes here, what he recognizes here is the mutual responsibility we have as Christians for one another. He knows his role and his responsibility. Once again, take the parental metaphor. Don't we understand this? If what it means to be a parent is to raise a child to maturity, isn't there a direct uh, connection then between how the child is doing and where the child gets to and how we look at the parents? Isn't the internet aflame with accusations and evidences of plenty that you were a bad parent? What do they look at? Do they look at your roster? Do they look at your plans? Do they look at what you're employing as tools? No, they look at your children. And Paul, in the same way, remember how he talked a few weeks ago about the thorn in the flesh? And he could say, this is a satanic attack and it's God's will for my life. He looks at what's going on here and he says, this is horrible sin in the church, but maybe God is trying to teach me a lesson. Oh man, that level of humility, ladies and gentlemen, in, other, in another person's sin, to not approach it before you ask, how am I failing them? How have I lacked providing support? And we've got to watch, walk a narrow bridge here. There's ditches on both sides. One is to excuse them and say, this is the parent's fault. Or this is completely my fault. To make them in their actual free will responsible choices merely just a consequence of our behavior or their upbringing or these types of things. That's a primary outlet for how the world deals with issues. Many camps in modern psychology say, you're this way because of this. As Christians, we need to maintain all of those things are significant. Your body is physically part of you. And so if there are chemical imbalances, that is a part of your life. It's part of the context. Your upbringing has shaped you more than you even realize right now. That's part of the context. Okay? The things that have happened to you, how you've been treated, is an essential part of where you're at. 
All of them are significant, but none of them are determinant. None of them leaves you stuck. Well, that's just what happened to you, and now you're left with who you are. No, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even when there's death, there's the possibility of life. And so we watch out here from excusing responsibility because of our own failures. But we also need to watch out for not recognizing the role we play in one another's lives. And that when one of us weeps, we should weep together. And that when one of us hurts, we should all hurt. And that when one of us falls, we should all feel the failure. Paul does. He says, I'm afraid I'm going to show up and I'm going to be humbled before the Lord. He makes a whole list of sins here, and it gives us the context of what's going on. If you look over the list that he presents here, and then you read 1 Corinthians, you go, oh, okay, this is what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians is basically a corrective letter where he says, look, guys, I've seen myself, and I've heard of a bunch of nasty stuff going on in the church, and he tries to set them straight. He lays it all out those things are apparently still potentially present in the church. That's why he says in chapter 13, verse 1, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So notice what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm now eyewitness of your behavior for the third time. Okay. And so he points to Deuteronomy, not just to talk about the importance of actually witnessing it for ourselves. And side note, I would encourage you not to deal with hearsay sin. Okay. But second, what he's really p- talking about here is patience. This is not the first time he's ever brought this up. He doesn't kick down the door and go, I hear that you've been sleeping around, our relationship is over, and he's out of there. This is two years of Paul's life of trying to teach them what the Bible says about these things, of calling for them without him to take the appropriate action. He's invested and he's been slow and he says, but things are escalating now. Isn't that what we saw in Jesus' words? If your brother sins against you, go to him alone. But if he won't hear you, then bring in another witness. And if you must, then take it before the church. And it's only then that we get to the final level of treating them like a tax collector and a sinner. It's patient escalation. It's not swift. It's slow. Have you ever thought about the complexities of once we get involved in our own sin, how messy it makes life? So, for example, you're, you're dating a girl and you move in together and now you've just, you're sharing the rent. And so somebody lovingly comes and says, look, this isn't appropriate. The Bible is clear that sex is to be on the other side of marriage. And even if you guys are having separate bedrooms, you're not doing anything of value to the witness you have with your neighbors or with other people. This needs to change. And then they just dust their hands off and go away and go, well, let's just see what they do. Have you ever thought about the conversations that are had there? How do we do that? We can't afford two places. You know, there's just all these components. See, one of the things that we see about Paul here, as you study the whole story from 1 Corinthians through 2 Corinthians, is that, um, that in his patience, he's willing to help them change. Okay? And this is another warning that Jesus makes. He says, you Pharisees, 
that you call out, out other people on their crap. And he says, but you don't lift a single finger to help them. Whatever confrontation looks like, it always looks like an invitation. It says, let me help you. Let me help you weave your way out of this. Let me help you untangle this mess. Let me bear part of the cost of repentance. And Paul has done that. He's done it in patience of giving them time to process, of giving them an opportunity to respond, of giving the leaders in the church a chance to deal it without getting him involved. But now he's been there twice and things are left unchanged. And just like Jesus recommended, there's escalation. Finishing up here, he says, Verse 2, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, as I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. He says he's been regularly telling them what's coming. He's been clear on the consequences. As you read the rest of the letter, he's clearly been begging them to do the right thing. He says in verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He says, you've been, everybody's been saying, Paul doesn't actually speak for Jesus. He lacks the power of a real apostle. He says, do you really want to see it? Do you really want the earmarks of my full maximum strength authority? He says, I've been weak towards you. I've been vulnerable towards you. I've intentionally restrained my strength out of love. Will you bring me to full consequence? Notice how he finishes here. He says this, he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live by him by the power of God. And so he comes back to this idea of strength in weakness, of power in weakness. And he reminds us again of the cross, that the cross is an act of weakness. Not because Jesus is inherently weak, he was willingly weak. But still, look at it. The greatest act of God in human history is bleeding and suffering. It's injustice. And yet it's that that God works powerfully, brings life, brings resurrection. I think here what Paul is saying is not, look, I've tried the cross, the cruciform life. Now I'm going to try the ruling and reigning life. I don't think he's saying, in me, you've seen the first coming of Jesus which is in weakness and in suffering and death, and now you're going to get the second coming of Paul, and I'm going to come in judgment. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he's recognizing here is that if they're going to learn the lesson of Paul's authority, it's going to be because God works repentance in them and takes these dead relationships and these lives that seem dead because of sin and makes them live again. And that's the last thing. Whenever we deal with other people's sin, we always come in hope. Whatever it is another person is doing or thinking or facing, it's a human problem. We don't go to people as monsters or as lost causes. We don't go as if these issues are too big or people are too far gone. We go with the God who brings life to the dead. We go with hope. For those of you who are Christians this morning, that is your story. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
but God has made us alive in Christ. Being a Christian is a miracle by the power of God. And that self-same power is available to those we call to repentance for the first time or afresh. And so Paul goes here with hope. And he says, I'm going to come in weakness. I'm going to come in the vulnerability of confrontation. I'm going to put the whole relationship on the line. I'm going to sacrifice my peace with you for the sake of true peace. He comes as a coroner and says, you need to understand that right now this is dead. Our relationship is dead. Your life is reaping the consequences of sin, which is death. But in the death of Jesus Christ, life is available. He doesn't want to just restore the relationship. He wants the relationship to be reborn. And so he goes here and he goes in hope. If you're not a Christian this morning, getting familiar with the teachings of Christianity in our day and age can seem so obtuse, so hard to understand because it's so different than the, the normal way we think as human beings until we look at the evidence. I was telling a friend this week that one of the primary reasons I believe Christianity to be true is because the way it diagnoses the human problem seems to me to be real. Every other religion and philosophy ever presented just says with more education, with more effort, with more teamwork, with my instruction, with five easy payments of $99.99, whatever it is, it says you can fix this. I've not found that to be the case in my life. I don't think we've found that to be the case in human history. I think every time there's been a revolution, there's been another tyranny. I think every time there's been progress, we have progressed both in the ability to help and the ability to harm. Yes, nuclear power, but also nuclear war. And when the Bible says there's something wrong with humanity that only God can fix, I go, that makes a lot of sense to me. But keep that reality that I am a sinner in context of Paul's words to Timothy when he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. You have to accept the bad news to receive the good news, but there is good news. And it's our heart as a church this morning, for those you know here, for those you've yet to meet, for those who you will shake hands with today, for those who may even have brought you, it is our heart that you would experience nothing short of resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty that... uh, that we had less time this morning, but because the Germans aren't gathering, we have plenty of time. And I thank you, Lord, uh, for the heart that you've worked into the Apostle Paul that shows us not just how we should handle sin in the church, but really how you do. That in Paul's fatherly heart for the church in Corinth, we find your heart as our heavenly father. And as the author of Hebrews confesses, and we can all agree, nobody enjoys discipline while they're enduring it. But if it is the evidence of your love for us, and if it is productive in freeing us from sin and bringing us to know you deeper and to be more like you, then we say, come, Lord. 
We say like the psalmist, search my heart, O God, and see if there is any wicked way within me. I pray, Lord, that we would be humble enough to receive the truth of those who love us in the church and that we would be loving enough to not allow things that are truly dealing damage to persist and look away and say it's no big deal, but we would be loving enough to instigate, to confront even, to invite, and that we would do it with this heart, Lord. Not machinistically, not legalistically, Lord, but paternally. With a heart full of sorrow, concern, and hope. Help us to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.